0: Again, thanks to Butch and Luke and Randy, Jeff, others who worked with that. It was a great week. All of the volunteer kind of counselors, coaches, and people who helped with the various registration aspects too. Great job. All right. Would you take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 23? We're continuing in our study of the Gospel of Matthew. And I, I just want to say at the beginning here, you know, that once in a while Pastor Ron, I mean, excuse me, <laughs> Pastor Ron, I'm thinking of Ron Burgett, no. Pastor Jim and Pastor Jason uh, give me a hard time as though I take my vacations and plan them according to which passages are toughest in the series. You know, and I, I'm gone those weeks. But I just want you to know that I'm here today and I, I'm taking the passage that deals with the seven woes that Jesus pronounced here on false religion. And uh, so we're going to take a look at that today and talk about the application that this has for our world as well. I'd like to read uh, Matthew 23, beginning at verses 1 to 12, and then we'll pick up from there. All right, listen to this word. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must obey them and do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces and to have men call them rabbi. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have only one master, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called teacher, for you have one teacher, the Christ. The greatest among you will be your servant, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Father, the passage we're looking at this morning has many challenging things in it. And I pray that you would give clarity, that you would guide me and my words as I share and explain what is being said here. But I pray most of all, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit you would speak to each of our hearts. And where there is need for change in us, Lord, bring conviction. And bring that courage of will to do the right thing, to follow you and put you first in our life. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Two weeks ago, Barbara Walters hosted a special on TV that was called, Where is Heaven and How Do We Get There? Now that's a great question. Where is heaven and how do we get there? I mean, we've had a summer ABF series that's been looking at that topic, uh, you know, using the material that Randy Alcorn has put together. Well, unfortunately, this television series, as you would expect, wasn't quite so clear on the answers. She traveled the world talking to leaders of various religions, Buddhism, Islam, Judaism, Mormonism, and Christians from different denominations and backgrounds. She said that 90% of the people in the United States believe that there is a heaven. That there is a place that we are going to go to after we die. A place of peace and rest that's beautiful. and, And most people believe that they are going to go there when they die. But their understanding of what heaven will be like and their understanding of how you get there is quite different. she traveled to places like India and Israel and other places, you know, interviewing people. And so she talked to the Dalai Lama, who is a Buddhist, or who people believe is Buddha today. And he shared their beliefs, that they believe that we go through many cycles of reincarnation. That, you know, if you live a, a good life and do good things, you know, you'll come back as a little bit better person the next time and a better person. But if you're really bad... You know, uh, you might even come back as an animal. And uh, you'll have to go through an endless series of reincarnation until you finally achieve nirvana. But for them, heaven isn't a real place. It's not like the Bible describes. And they don't believe in a personal God like we know of God the Father and Jesus the Son. They believe in sort of that attainment of nothingness. And peace that comes that way at the end of all of these stages. She interviewed Muslims, including those that are extremists. And Muslims believe that heaven is for those who believe in Allah, who follow the way of Muhammad. Uh, they even believe that their martyrs and even suicide bombers will receive special treatment in heaven, and they'll be waited upon by 70 virgins and kind of uh, the delights of men in that particular location. Mormons, it was interesting to hear some of their answers as they shared. Mormons believe that there are different levels to heaven and they believe that in the end they will become gods, that Jesus was once like us as a man and we will become like him as a God. And at some point in the future we would Uh, if we believed what the Mormons believed and followed all that they taught, that we would have our own planet someday and populate it with spirit beings as well. They believe that there are these different levels of heaven, though, depending upon how you live and what you believe in this life. And Jews and Christians believe that heaven is a real place, that there is a place that God has prepared for us. Now, we differ on the way that you get there, um, in that Christians, we believe that Jesus Christ is the way, he is the door. But both Jews and Christians believe that there is a coming judgment when we will stand before God to give an account for our life, the way that we have lived, and we will be recorded, rewarded or punished accordingly. And then, of course, on this series, they had to interview the secularists and atheists who believe that there is no heaven, no hell, that it's all sort of a mental phenomena in our brain and that there really isn't anything after we die. We die and that's it. That's the end of everything. So who's right? And how do we know? You know, the danger of a series like that or a show like that is it tends to portray heaven as though it's like the top of a mountain and there are many different ways to get there. And that it doesn't really matter what path you're on, you know, we're all headed toward the same place. But Jesus would disagree with that. And if anyone had a question about that, if anyone were to think that in religion any sincere faith would do, they need to read Matthew chapter 23, where Jesus not only condemned all false religion, but he even took issue with his own people, with the Pharisees and those who were Jews, who had been brought up as he had, Hearing the Scriptures, but they had missed the mark. The reason that we believe in the heaven that we do is because of what Jesus taught. Jesus never suggested for a moment that any faith would do. He taught that there is only one way to heaven and that that way is through Him. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except Through me. And the real question is does Jesus have the right to say that? Well, that's what the Gospels were all about. That's why the Gospels were written, so that we might hear what Jesus taught, we might look at his life and examine that and come to the conclusion that Jesus is Lord and God. He's the one who's been given all authority on heaven, in heaven and on earth, and he has the right to say what he does. He's the only way of salvation. The reason Christians believe that is because of Jesus' life and teaching. And that's not popular today in a world that wants to kind of tolerate and believe that everything is okay and what everyone believes is just fine. But it is that belief that Jesus is the only way of salvation that fuels our passion to share the gospel with every person on this earth. It's what fuels our ministry. It's what drives our missions to bring the good news of the gospel to those who have never heard it before. Now, the passage we're going to look at today is a longer one, so I'm not sure if we're going to get through all of it. What I'd like to do, just to let you know where we're headed, is first of all, we're going to look at the three dangers that Jesus spoke about at the beginning, three dangers that can keep people from heaven. And then at the end, we're going to look at the seven woes that Jesus pronounced, not only on the Pharisees, but on all false religion. All right, let's start at the beginning then. The first danger that Jesus spoke of was the danger of hypocrisy, and we see that in verses 1 to 3. And he talked about the Pharisees, and he said, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. For a long time, scholars thought that the phrase Moses' seat was just a figure of speech. But actually, archaeologists have confirmed that Moses' seat was a real place. It was the seat that was at the front of the synagogue where the authoritative teacher in that synagogue would sit. It was like a bench at the front of a church, if you will. And that's where this expert in the law would sit and he would teach from the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. And his teaching was not to be questioned. In fact, it's interesting here that Jesus even says that you must obey them and do everything that they tell you. In as far as their teaching is accurate, you must obey them. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. Now, There's that phrase that I'm sure you have heard before about, you know, practicing what you preach, that's where it comes from. And God does expect of us a consistency. None of us are perfect in keeping everything that God has said, but we are to be consistent in our example, and especially those that are leaders or teachers in the church are to be a role model of faith to others so that they might follow our example. Like Paul who said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. The danger of hypocrisy is real. It happens today, sadly, too, and it turns many people away from the good news of the gospel. I grew up in a church where the gospel was not clearly taught or preached. I knew all the stories about Jesus. I went to church every Sunday when my parents were there, they took me to church. I heard the parables of Jesus, I knew the Ten Commandments, I memorized the Lord's Prayer, all of those things, but I never heard it taught clearly that I had a need to receive Christ personally as my Savior and Lord. What I heard was that I was baptized as an infant and I was in. That I was baptized as an infant and because of that God had accepted me and I was in the family. And I never heard of a need to personally come to that point where I would confess my sins to God and receive Him as my Savior and Lord. Until a friend invited me to go to a summer Bible camp. And there, for the first time, I heard someone clearly explain the gospel to me and my need to receive Christ as my Savior and Lord. I wasn't a Christian because of my parents or because I went to church or other things like that. I needed to make that decision to trust in Christ. And I did that at the age of 10. But when I went back to my church, I did not get any kind of follow-up, and I was kind of left to try and figure this out on my own. And I was troubled by the hypocrisy that I saw in my own church as a teenager. The town that I grew up in was a lot like Mayberry, RFD, you know? Andy Griffith Show? Small town, everybody knew everybody. My best friend was Andy Griffith. His dad was Andy Griffith. You know, he was the local sheriff in town. And so I played in the county jail, you know, played basketball. There was hardly anybody ever in there. If there was somebody in there, it was usually a pretty minor offense. And my best friend's mom would cook the meals and bring them across for whoever was in jail. And that's kind of the way life was. But because of that relationship, I probably knew more than I should have as a young boy. And I would hear stories on occasion of how our church chairman was too drunk to drive home from the local American Legion and needed a ride from the sheriff or the police. I also got confusing messages at church like the time one of the ushers at the back of the church told me an off-color joke that took the Lord's name in vain. And as a teenager in my church, you know, I I didn't know elders, deacons. I didn't think anything different of anybody. I thought, you know, if you're a a man in the church and you're involved here in ministry in some way, that, you know, you're an example, a leader. and, And I'm going, what is going on here? I mean, this just didn't seem right. But you know what? I was a hypocrite too. I wasn't doing what I should have been doing. I was involved in the church, but I was running with friends and doing things outside of church that my family didn't know about at the time, and I, I wasn't living the life either. I was a hypocrite. And that did not come to a head for me until my freshman year in college. When I was so frustrated by this kind of riding the fence and double life that I cried out to God and I said, God, would you show me the way? I hadn't given up on God, I hadn't given up on His Word, but I had given up on church at that point. And I began to read through the Scriptures on my own once again. And God brought conviction to my heart, and He brought into my life some people, some friends, other students who talked about Jesus like he was their very best friend. They had something I wanted. And that was the turning point for me. When I was discipled by some others who were farther along than me in their faith and were helping me to grow in Christ. And I learned that if my faith is to be pleasing to God, it needs to be real, it needs to be personal, it needs to be honest that the only way that we can get to know God is through His Son, Jesus Christ. And there is a danger with hypocrisy in that people can believe that just because I go to church, I'm a Christian. But going to church doesn't make you a Christian. It can all be a show or a nice thing to do or a cultural thing to do. What we need is a genuine personal faith in Jesus as our Savior and Lord. There's another danger that can keep people from heaven. It is the danger of legalism that's found in verse 4. Jesus said, They tie up heavy loads and they put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. What makes Jesus' denunciation of the Pharisees so striking is that these were the most highly respected religious leaders of their day. I mean, these men knew the Scriptures. They fasted and prayed. They tithed. I mean, if you looked at their life, I mean, if these guys aren't going to make it into heaven, then who is? But their faith was in the wrong place. And they stood condemned. When he said that they tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, he is referring to the burden that they placed on men in terms of the oral tradition. The Pharisees believed in placing a fence around the Torah, it was called. A fence around the Torah. That if God's Word, you know, and His commandments say, we aren't to do this, or we should do this, well then, you know, we're going to place more restrictions around that so you don't even get near breaking the commandment, you know? And one of the clearest examples of that was regarding the Sabbath. God said, honor the Sabbath, remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. Well, they said, you know, we're going to legislate everything from how far you can walk to what work you can do and can't do and to how you have to uh, treat that day. And they had all kinds of rules about that that were a burden and that missed the mark. And the thing about rules is that some people feel like they keep them better than others and they kind of start to look at, you know, well, I'm doing pretty well on this, you know, I don't know about my neighbor, but you know, I'm I'm doing this. And they build themselves up in a wrong way. Have you ever read the book by Philip Yancey called What's So Amazing About Grace? It's a good book. Good book that talks about the awesomeness of God's grace here's what he said he grew up in the south and i believe it was in atlanta that area and he said i grew up in a church that drew sharp lines between the age of law and the age of grace while ignoring most moral prohibitions from the old testament we had our own pecking order rivaling the orthodox jews at the top of the list were smoking and drinking those were the worst Of course, he said, this being the South, however, with its tobacco-dependent economy, some allowances were made for smoking. (laughs) Movies ranked just below uh, those two in terms of uh, how people felt on the list of vices. In fact, he said, I remember many church members refusing to even attend The Sound of Music because it was a movie. Rock music, then in its infancy, was likewise regarded as an abomination, quite possibly demonic in origin. Other proscriptions were things like wearing makeup and jewelry. That was no. You shouldn't do that. Reading the Sunday paper. Playing or watching sports on Sunday. Mixed swimming. Skirt length for girls. Hair length for boys. Boys. And whether you heeded them or not, that determined your spirituality. Your level of spirituality was based upon how closely you follow those rules. And I grew up with this strong impression, he said, that a person became spiritual by attending to these gray area rules. And for the life of me, I could not figure out much difference between the dispensations of law and grace. Anyone grow up in a setting like that where you feel like there was a list of do's and don'ts and that's the way that you make yourselves right with God? You know, what's sad is throughout the history of the church there have been times like that. There have been aesthetics who have believed that, you know, in this life we should not delight in anything. There was a French aesthetic who said he believed we should never smell a flower, never drink when parched with thirst, Never drive away a fly. Never show disgust before a repugnant object. Never complain of anything that had to do with personal comfort. Never sit down. Never lean upon his elbows when he was kneeling. St. Bernard in Switzerland covered his eyes to avoid the beauty of the Swiss lakes. I I don't want to look at those lakes. They're too beautiful. They might become an idol to me. And they lived that way thinking that somehow by this kind of severe asceticism it was pleasing to God. And yet the scripture says in 1 Timothy 4, 4 that everything God created is good and nothing's to be rejected if it is received with gratitude and thanksgiving. God is a good God and he made this beautiful world for us to enjoy and he doesn't want us to go through life covering our eyes. And what happens when people fall into this kind of legalism, you know, they take great pride in that and keeping all of these rules and regulations and they miss the most important matters of God's Word. Our relationship with Him. To love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love our neighbor as ourselves. Do those things and you will keep the intent of the law thirdly the danger of pride that's where these things lead and we see it in verses 5 to 12 and it really is summed up best right there in verse 5 when jesus says that everything they do is done for men to see it is possible to do the right things but for the wrong reasons you know it's good to go to church It's a good thing to go to church and to be with our brothers and sisters in Christ and to worship God and to fellowship together and to hear from God's Word. But sadly, some people can do that for the wrong reason and they can just go to church as though they're punching in a time card and, you know, I should do this because I want to be a good person or I want others to think well of me. That's not why we're here. We are here because we love God and because you know once a week it's really good for me to align my life with the compass of God's word and to say God am I walking with you as I should is there anything in my life that is hurtful is there anything I need to confess to you today Jesus I love you and I want to follow you fully and we come and we when we come with that kind of hard attitude that says God here I am use me And we come to join in the celebration. He is pleased and he honors that. If it's all for show, it's a fraud. And Jesus went on in these verses and he said, you know, they make their phylacteries wide and their tassels on their garments long. A phylactery was a a small leather box that was worn on the forehead or on the arm in which they would place scriptures. And it was a a good thing you might say in the sense that it was to remind them that they were to follow God's Word. And so they'd have these little leather boxes on their forehead. You've probably seen pictures of that. But that can sort of become a competition thing and well, maybe mine's a little bit bigger than yours. Or maybe mine, you know, I'm following more of them. Or, you know, and it can get a little out of hand where somebody can go like this, you know. And it's like, I got the whole thing there, right? You know? You know, but... I know my chiropractor would say that wouldn't be good for me. I'd be putting a lot of weight on the forehead there doing that. But they would do things like that for show. The tassels on their prayer shawl. They would have tassels on the four corners of a prayer shawl to remind them to pray. And Jesus said they'd make them extra long. You know, it's like the longer they are, the more spiritual I am. Do we do things like that? There are a lot of people today who wear crosses. What does that mean? What does wearing a cross mean? Does that mean that my life is absolutely surrendered to Jesus Christ? Or is that just jewelry? Is that just something that people wear? Jesus accused the Pharisees of treating these phylacteries and the tassels like an amulet. You want know, an amulet? An amulet is a pagan symbol, kind of a good luck charm. Do you wear a cross as a good luck charm? Or does it really mean Jesus is my Lord and my life is fully surrendered to Him? They love the places of honor at banquets and in the synagogue. They love to be greeted in the marketplace and they have people call them Rabbi, my teacher, or my master. You know, there's nothing wrong with showing respect or honoring one another. And I think this is, this is a verse or a passage that needs a little bit of explanation. It's just like when Jesus talked about oaths. And he said, you know, that um, we should let our yes be yes and our no be no. Okay? We shouldn't need an oath to get us to tell the truth. We should be truthful all the time. And I think in this area, in terms of honors and titles, it is very similar. It's not an absolute prohibition against all titles or all positions, because when you go on in the Scriptures, you see that it's God who has called some to be apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. But it's God who does that. It's God who calls people into those positions. And it is right for us to honor our father and our mother. It's one of the Ten Commandments. But we are never, never to put someone else in the place of God. And take pride and you know, that's my rabbi, that's my master, my teacher. And to give them more respect than they are due. Because we are all equal before God. And there are different gifts, but they are given by the Holy Spirit. And those who are called to leadership, the Scripture says, are to be servants of Christ and His church. It's not wrong to recognize someone or a position that they are in. We have elders and deacons in the church, and those are directed by Scripture. But don't ever give someone more authority than they are due. Because none of us stand in the place of God. So ultimately, Jesus condemned the Pharisees and all false religion for seven things. And I'm not going to have time to go through these in detail, but I am going to list them. He condemned them for failing to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. Verse 13. If anyone should have recognized Jesus as the Messiah and welcomed Him, they should have, but they missed it. He condemned them for corrupting or for converting people to their own religion and not to God's. They corrupted their converts. They converted people to their own oral traditions and rules and regulations and not to God's way of salvation. that happens today too. He condemned them for being blind guides in verses 16 to 22. Instead of pointing the way to Jesus, they used religion to serve their own ends. And their evasive oath taking was a way to avoid doing what God had said. They also trivialized religion in verses 23 and 24. Let me give you an example here. He said in verse 23 Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint and dill and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice. Mercy and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. It would be like this like in the summer, my wife and I enjoy iced tea or lemonade or things like that, and, and uh, Gail grows some mint on the deck in our backyard. Well, you know, it would be like me saying to Gail, Gail, you know, when you pick that sprig of mint leaves, you know, were there ten leaves on there? Okay, well, we've got to make sure we tear off one leaf and put that into the offering today, you know, so that we, we tie that mint leaf sprig, okay? And they would they would do things like that and miss the more important things of loving your neighbor, being kind, of justice, of faithfulness, of mercy, of forgiveness... They got things all turned around. And what Jesus is saying here is that, you know, tithing is a good thing. They should have tithe. It's not that we should neglect that. We should give to the Lord a portion of what He has given to us. But don't do it at the expense of neglecting the greater things that are in the law. Of justice and mercy and faithfulness. He condemned them for greed and self-indulgence. He used the word picture that they cleaned the outside of the cup and not the inside. Isn't that a disgusting picture? They worried about everything on the outside for show, but the inside, you wouldn't even want to drink out of it. He condemned them for hypocrisy and wickedness in verses 27 and 28. He called them whitewashed tombs. This is during the week that will lead up to the cross it's Passover is coming and in their tradition what they would do is prior to Passover week they'd send people out to mark all the tombs with light so that no one would accidentally touch them and become unclean and unable to participate in Passover and those who are uh, more conscientious about it or who desired their tombs to look better would paint them completely whitewashed tombs look good on the outside but inside they were wretched and decaying. And finally, he condemned them for murdering God's prophets, past, present, and future. From Abel to Zechariah, they were guilty of doing what their forefathers had done. And in Jesus' words, he predicted what was going to happen in the future when they would put to death his prophets and apostles. But even more than that, they would crucify God's very own son, Jesus. And then finally, listen to his words in verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together, as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It was a judgment spoken with tears. You see, Jesus' warning is for all of us. Hypocrisy, legalism, pride, can keep us from heaven if we don't have a genuine relationship with Him. And our need more than anything else is to repent of our sin and to turn to Christ for salvation. And any religion, denomination or church that denies that Jesus Christ is Lord and that He is the only way of salvation is a false religion. For as the Scriptures say, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Let's pray. Jesus, you stand alone. There is no one like you. And we believe these things because of your life and your testimony and what you have said. And Father, I pray that if there's anyone here today who's uncertain about their relationship with you, that today would be the day that they say, Jesus, would you forgive me and come into my life and be my Savior and Lord? Father, help us to stand for truth in an age that is really waffling. Help us to be faithful in bringing the good news to those who have never heard it before. And would you use us as a church to be a light in this community and use us in the individuals in our neighborhood and places where we work and go to school to help others to come to know you too. In Jesus' name, amen.